Heavenly Father, we are in desperate need of you. We all have things in our lives that maybe we cannot overcome. Maybe it's not some great sin in the eyes of others, but in our own heart we know there are victories that are to be gained and we don't have the strength. As we look at the greatest trial that has ever taken place in human history, we see how the victory was gained and I pray that we would also learn and we would gain victory from the one who found that victory 2,000 years ago. Father, we commit the time to you. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. The year was 320 A.D. In Licinius, the emperor of eastern Rome, had broken his agreement with the emperor of western Rome by the name of Constantine. And Licinius began to persecute the Christians in his jurisdiction. As this persecution went forth, all the people had to do, they just had to do something very simple and they could go free. They would not have to suffer, uh, you know, beatings and torture and even death. All they had to do was something very, very simple and they could go free. All they had to do was maybe take like a a little pinch of of something like incense and put it on the altar to some of the Roman pagan gods and they could go free and they wouldn't have to be persecuted. All they had to do was sacrifice to the pagan Roman gods and they could go free. So Licinius began to send forth his soldiers to persecute the people. But this, this persecution went all the way to the individuals who were in the army, the legionnaires. And so even these men had to make a sacrifice to the pagan gods and and then they could be set free. Well, there were a group of 40 men that were called the Thundering Legion, or later became known known as the Martyrs of Sebast. And these men... They were asked to, you know, simply go forth and, and, you know, sacrifice to these idols, but they said, no, we cannot do it. They even went through persecution of beatings. Their life was even threatened, but they would not give up. They were faithful. These 40 men, these 40 men, the thundering legion were faithful to Jesus. And finally they said, okay, since you are being so rebellious, what we're going to do is we are going to bring you out to the frozen lake. There was a lake there being wintertime, and this lake had frozen over, and they took the 40 soldiers, and what they did was they, they made them take off all of their clothing. They stripped them completely naked in the dead of winter. These men had to walk out bare feet on a frozen lake. The soldiers then began to ignite fires around the lake. They even set up a tub that, that had warm water, and they said, you are all welcome to come off of the ice and warm yourself up as soon as you are ready to renounce Christianity. You can imagine this is a difficult situation, and you can imagine the conversation that begins to go forth to those soldiers who are in this situation. They say, listen, we know men who have sacrificed their life for an earthly king. Can we let go of our faith for an earthly king? Not at all. They said, we must follow the king of kings. And they began, as they were on that ice, and you can imagine, at first it feels cold, then it begins to burn, and then a numbness begins to set in, but begins traveling up the body. And the pain was so intense that they, it said that they began to chant, O Lord! Forty wrestlers have come forth to fight for thee. Grant that forty wrestlers 
may gain the victory. They began to chant this together, trying to encourage each other, but something happened. One of the youngest soldiers, his mother actually came by the frozen lake and she enticed her son to come off and to renounce his faith. And he did exactly that. But these men, they were, they were so troubled by this, they continued their chant. They said, oh Lord, 40 wrestlers have come to fight for thee. Grant that 40 wrestlers may gain the victory. And one of the soldiers standing on the side of the lake, as he was watching, he became so stirred by this, this heroic standing for the truth, for this Jesus that they believed as their Savior, that one of the soldiers, who, his name was Semprenius, he came forth and he, he saw all of this take place. It stirred his heart to the core and he began to think, I too will accept this Jesus as my personal Savior. And he ended up taking off his you know, gear, all that he had. He took his weapon, he dropped it to the ground, took off his boots there and he made his way naked onto the ice with all of these other men. And he gave his life and they could once again say, Oh Lord, 40 wrestlers have come to fight for thee. Grant that 40 wrestlers may gain the victory. And the next morning, the 40 martyrs of Sebast were found on the ice and forever recorded their faithful resistance in the annals of history. These men died for Jesus. You know, I look back through history. I look at men through history, men like John Huss, Johann Hus. I've had the opportunity to go see the church that he preached in. It's been rebuilt there in the Czech Republic in the city of Prague. The Bethlehem Church, they call it. This man loved Jesus so much that he was willing to give his life that when the time came for him to give his life for Jesus, they say as he was marching to the, to the stake to be burned to death, that they say that he was actually singing a hymn. They talk of others who were dying for their faith as they were going forth to maybe whatever form of torture they were going to, that men and women would go forth not as to a you know, funeral, but as it were, they would hold their heads high as if they were going to a beautiful banquet, like a king and a queen. These godly people, something amazing took place in their lives, and they gave their life for the Savior Jesus Christ. What is it that made these people go to their death with joy in their heart, with a smile on their face even, and with songs on their lips? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 7. We're going to look in Acts chapter 7. In the book of Acts, we read about several of the faithful who gave their life for Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 7, we have one of the deacons of the church. Acts chapter 7, this deacon's name was none other than Stephen. And Stephen was preaching to the leadership of Israel. He was speaking to the leaders of Israel about Jesus Christ and how they, they had crucified him. And notice what happens as a result of this. Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 7 beginning in verse 54. Acts chapter 7 verse 54, when you're there would you please say Amen. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. The Bible says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. I think what that's kind of saying, they gnashed on him with their teeth, it's kind of like they're so angry, they're going, you know, they're just angry at him. 
Verse 55, but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Notice here he is about to die and he's not even thinking about his death. He is seeing Jesus on the right hand of the Father. So he's thinking on heavenly things even as he's going to his death. Verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and they stoned him and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord. Lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he what? He fell asleep. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Think his last words. His last words before he dies are not, Lord, save me. But he's actually praying praying that God would not lay the sin of these people to their church. In essence, he's praying, praying for the salvation of those people around him. What an amazing thing, right? That in a time where you think you'd be thinking about yourself, this man is actually thinking of other salvation more than his own life on planet Earth. Look at another example of this in Acts chapter 5. Hang a left a moment. Go to Acts chapter 5, verse 26. Acts chapter 5, just a couple pages over for me. Acts chapter 5, verse 26. We have here a picture of some of the apostles. They are preaching the gospel. And as a result, they are captured. And after they are captured and put in prison, God miraculously frees them from their prison. They come out into freedom and they go back and they begin to preach in the temple or in the synagogue. So here they're preaching in the synagogue. And as they do, notice what we read in verse 26. It says, Then went the captain with the officers and he brought them without violence. For they feared the people lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not command you that you should not teach in this name, not to teach in the name of Jesus? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than what? Rather than men. These men were willing to stand for the truth, even even if it would cost them their lives, imprisonments, beatings, whatever it was. They were saying, listen, we ought to obey God rather than men. Verse 30 says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew, and hanged him on a tree. Him has God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and for forgiveness of sins. So something happens here. They're in the the midst of their trial. They are actually sharing Jesus with their captors now. They're presenting the Savior, the one who had given his life for them, and they're willing to give their life for him. And notice what it says. Jump down with me all the way to verse 40, near near the bottom of the chapter. Verse 40 says, after this, we're starting, it says, and and to him they agreed, but we're starting here. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So they beat the disciples, and they let them go. And they, the disciples, departed, or the apostles departed from the presence of the council. What's that next word? Rejoicing, right? 
They just got beaten, and here they are rejoicing, right? So they're rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for Jesus' name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Now I want you to think about this with me for a moment. Here are these men. These men have given their life to the Savior. They have given their life to Jesus, and they're being beaten for Him, they're being cast in prison, and they're not afraid. They are not afraid of giving their life for the Savior. But I want you to think about this for a moment. You look throughout history. You look in the book of Acts. And you have men giving their lives for Jesus Christ. Dying, going forth with with strength and even joy to their death. You go to the early church, you see the very same thing with people like the Thundering Legion who went through extreme torture, but yet at the same time, they were faithful to the end. You go even further, you go to the dark ages through the, uh, you know, through the persecution that took place then, and you see the same thing, that men and women were faithful unto death, men and women like the Waldenses, like the Huguenots. Different men and women who were faithful unto death had joy all the way as they went to their deaths. Some of them with smiles on their faces. But then we see a picture in the Bible that is completely distinct and separate from these men and women going to their death. These men and women were doing it with joy and with peace and strength from God. But then we see a picture that's totally distinct in the four Gospels. There was a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth who was much more than a man. He was actually God in the flesh, God with us, Emmanuel. As Jesus went to his death, even prior to going there, he has this amazing experience in the garden. And his garden experience and his experience upon the cross are very, is very different than the experience that his apostles had. A very different experience. Now turn with me in Mark chapter 14, if you have your Bibles. Mark chapter 14, and here we have Jesus. We see something distinct and different from his followers. Notice how Jesus goes to his death. Mark chapter 14, we're going to begin in verse 33. Mark chapter 14, verse 33, and it says, And he, Jesus, took with him Peter and James and John, his very close disciples. He took with them Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed, the King James says, and to be very heavy. Things became extremely heavy. His heart was sinking as the weight of the sins of the world began to press upon his heart, upon his mind. And notice what it says. It says, and he, he takes with him Peter and James and John and begins to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And verse 34 says, and he said to them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto what? Unto death. Tarry ye here. Watch. He says, watch. Jesus here is going through something. As Jesus is making his way to the cross, as he is going through this experience of, of being, as it were, pressed down like an olive press, as life is being wrenched out of him by the sins of the world, Jesus is not rejoicing in song. Jesus isn't chanting a song about 40 men have come to thee. He's not doing that. Jesus is pleading that this will not happen to him. 
Does Jesus not have as much faith as those who followed him after? So what was happening? Why on earth would Jesus have more fear of his death than the people who followed him? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Luke. Look with me in Luke chapter 22. It's the same story we were just reading about. It's the Gethsemane story. Look with me in Luke chapter 22. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, we are going to read in verse 39. Luke chapter 22 in verse 39. What on earth was happening? Why was Jesus so afraid of dying when his followers don't seem to be? We're looking in Luke chapter 22, verse 39. And he, Jesus, came out and went, the King James says, as he was wont. That word means as was customary. And he came out and went as, he was, as his custom was to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that you enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and he kneeled down and prayed. And notice what Jesus prays here. He doesn't say, praise the Lord that I'm going through this trial, that I can suffer for my Father's sake. Notice what Jesus prays at this point. Saying, verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is praying, Father, this is too much of a burden for me. This is too difficult for me to go through. And the strange thing is, we don't see Jesus like this at any other point in his ministry. The rest of his ministry, he's going forth with power. The rest of his ministry, he simply quotes scripture to the enemy as he's starving to death. He wasn't afraid, saying, Father, I might die if I don't eat. He, you see him, he's strong in his father. He says, listen, I live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God as he's in that trial. But in this trial, something is different. Something is taking place in the life of the Son of God. He's saying, Father, I cannot bear this burden that I am holding right now. Why? Why, if his followers do not suffer like this, why does he? This could almost be a scary passage, but notice what begins to happen here. We notice that something horrible is taking place as we read on. It says in verse 43, and there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. You know, it's interesting that Jesus, at the end of his uh, temptations in the wilderness, the Bible also says that angels came and they ministered unto him. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, are they, speaking of the angels, not all, not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister unto them who shall be heirs of salvation. God actually sends angels to protect people, to take care of them. And in this situation, they came to support Jesus. Jesus is saying, listen, I cannot make it. I cannot make it through the cross. It is too much for me to bear. Notice what happens to Jesus here. He says in verse 44, And being in an agony, he prayed even more earnestly, Jesus did. And his sweat was as it were great drops of what? Blood falling where? Falling down to the ground. Jesus, his agony is even more ten intense at this point. As the weight of your sins and mine begin to press down upon the Son of God, it becomes too heavy a weight to bear, and he is pleading with his Heavenly Father, and the stress becomes so intense that the, the, it seems as if his, his sweat is, as it were, tinged with blood. 
I don't know if you know, but there is a medical, a medical experience that somebody can go through. It's actually called hematohydrosis. Hematohydrosis. This is a, what happens when someone, someone gets in an extreme amount of stress. The stress is so great. I'm going to read to you about it right here. This is according to Dr. Frederick Zugib, former chief medical examiner, examiner of Rockland County, New York. It says he, it is well known, and there have been many cases of hematohydrosis. This is something that happens. Well, what is it? The clinical, the clinical term is hematohydrosis. He said, around the sweat glands, there are multiple blood vessels in a net-like form. Under the pressure of great stress, the vessels constrict. Then, as the anxiety passes, the blood vessels dilate to the point of rupture. The blood goes into the sweat glands. As the sweat glands are producing a lot of sweat, it pushes the blood to the surface, coming out as droplets of blood mixed with sweat. Jesus was suffering. This happens when people are in, under intense, very, very intense situations of stress. This is not just, you know, you're studying for a test and it's kind of stressful, right? You're not sweating blood over that one. But under extreme amounts of stress, we read on, Dr. Zugib says, the severe mental anxiety activated the sympathetic nervous system to invoke the stress fight or flight reaction to such a degree, causing hemorrhage of the vessels, supplying the sweat glands into the ducts of the sweat glands and extruding out onto the skin. Later on, he says, the presence of profound fear accounted for a significant number of recorded cases, including six cases of men condemned to execution. They had this experience. They began to sweat blood. It talks about people who were being raped going through this very, very same thing. And then notice what it says. This is a very interesting point about this, uh, this experience that a human body can go through because of extreme stress. It says the, effect, the effects on the body is that of, notice what it does to you if you experience this. The effects on the body is that of weakness and mild to moderate dehydration from the severe anxiety and both the blood and sweat loss. So notice what it does in this extreme, in this extreme stress where you begin to sweat blood, something happens, you become dehydrated. Jesus, as he hangs upon the cross, dying for our sins, what is something he said while he's on the cross? I thirst. I thirst. Here is Jesus suffering for humanity. A stress beyond what most any of us could ever imagine. Actually, more than any of us can ever imagine. And notice what it goes on. Here is another characteristic of what happens to the human body as a, as a result of going through hematohydrosis. It says, another effect is that the skin becomes extremely tender and fragile. So that any pressure or damage to the skin is more than ordinarily painful. Do you get the picture here? Jesus is in the garden sweating blood. He is having this, this experience of hematohydrosis, and what happens is he is now becoming, he hasn't drank for some time now, so he's also just thirsty by nature, but then he has this experience where he is suffering intense stress, so it's even compounded by this, and then all of a sudden his skin, after he goes through this experience, becomes very tender to the touch. That any kind of, any kind of, you know, anything that would be inflicted upon him would just be heightened as a result. 
Here Jesus, our Savior, is going to the cross. But you know what? All this terrible experience He's going through, all the, all the uh, scourging that takes place to the Son of God is horrible and painful, but that's not the suffering, that's not the ultimate suffering that He was dealing with. Even though His skin was more tender than your common individual, He was suffering intense pain. But the suffering He was going through, why is it Why is it that Jesus' followers go through torture? I mean, I read the story of an Adventist minister, I Will Die Free. Has anybody ever read that book? There's a man man by the name of Alexander Noble who is an Adventist minister in Cuba. This man was tortured for 22 years. He was put in a box where he was crouched down like this with six other men. They couldn't move for 90 days. They were tortured. He was put in another box where he had to stand there and they they put him, uh, there were nails under his heels and and so all he could do was stand on his tiptoes and he had to stand on his tiptoes for like 40 days while while water was dropping on his forehead. 22 years he suffered this. Strangely enough, it was, um, what was the brother's name, my wife, who helped get him out of prison? Yeah, Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson helped get the brother out of prison. But nevertheless, this man went through just this horrible experience, and yet here we see Jesus. Jesus is suffering in ways that his followers aren't. Jesus is going to his death with fear that his followers don't seem to have. How could this be? You may have heard the saying, it's in a book called Desire of Ages, that Jesus could not see through the Portals of the what? Of the tomb. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 20 for a moment. Revelation chapter 20. Why was Jesus so fearful and his followers, sure they had some fear, but they were at least over, able to overcome it and just press forward and even go singing. Why was Jesus' experience so much different? Notice what is going to happen to God's, or not God's people, the people who reject God's love in the end. Meaning God is, God is not willing. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, tells us that God is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is patient or long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that what? All, to, all should come to repentance. Meaning God is saying, listen, nobody has to be lost. I have given something sufficient so that every human being can be saved. And I want you to come to me. Jesus says, listen, I want you to come to me. Everybody can be saved if you'll give your life wholly to me. But in Revelation chapter 20, we see the results of what happened to those who do not follow Jesus, those who reject him, not that they didn't have the opportunity, but those who didn't want to follow Jesus. It says in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12, it says, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. This is the great white throne judgment. This is, this is actually the end of time. Now, after the thousand years, let me give you just a quick backup here. The millennium kind of works like this. The millennium of Bible prophecy, Revelation chapter 20, in chapter 19, you have a picture of the second coming of Jesus. So Jesus comes back, takes the righteous who have died, resurrects them, and he brings them up to heaven. While he is bringing them up, the righteous living also go up to be with Jesus. The wicked are slain at that time, and these ascend to heaven, and they are there, the Bible says in Revelation 20, for a thousand years. 
During that thousand year period, there's a judgment taking place. The righteous are a part of that judgment. And at the end of the thousand years, the wicked rise up from the dead. Those who chose to reject Jesus, remember, not because God didn't want them to be saved, but they didn't want to be saved. And so they are raised up at the end of the millennium. And notice what it says here in verse 12. Let's read it again. I saw the dead. These are the wicked at the end of time. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell were delivered up, or in death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. Verse 14. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Notice these words. This is the what? The second death. This is the second death. But it says in verse 15, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the destruction of the wicked. God is not a a tyrannical dictator that tortures people through the ceaseless ages of eternity, according to the Bible. But he puts people down in the second death. But as these people are going to the second death, they have absolutely no hope of what? Of eternal life. Not because he didn't want them there, but because they would not choose to be in heaven. And this is the experience that the people who reject Jesus ultimately will go through and get the picture. Jesus, as he's going to his death, he is not going to the first death. The first death is what his martyrs go through. The first death is what all of us go through if, we, if we're not alive at the time of the second coming. Meaning, the first death is what, you know, you're there with grandma and she, you know, breathes her last. That's the first death. But that's not the end of eternity, right? Meaning, all those who are faithful to Jesus after the first death, they are taken up at the second coming of Jesus. They receive eternal life. And so the martyrs, as they're preparing for their death, they recognize this is just a temporary experience. Do you understand? They have faith that Jesus died for their sin. They're not holy. They're not righteous in and of themselves. The holiness they have is from the Savior Jesus Christ. That's the only, I mean, the Bible talks about that in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 6. It says, in his days Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is the name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. God's the one who gives us the righteousness. We don't acquire it by our own goodness. It is something that we just cling to the Savior And he gives us righteousness. And they are saved in the end. So the wicked, not the wicked, but the righteous martyrs, as they're standing there on the ice waiting to die as the thundering legion was, they know this is a temporary situation. I'm going to suffer for a number of hours, but I'm going to hear the next thing I know, I'm going to see Jesus. Jesus, on the other hand, as he was going to his death, He did not have the experience of the thundering legion. The reason was Jesus was not seeing through the portals of the tomb. Jesus could not see that he could receive eternal life. The darkness was so great. Why? Why couldn't he see that he was going to be resurrected in three days? I mean, it's just three days. Why couldn't he see that? The reason he couldn't see it, because Jesus had to suffer what the wicked are going to live through at the end of the millennium. He had to suffer the second death. 
My wife tells me she grew up in the church. I did not. My wife tells me growing up in the church, she thought, what, you know, what's the big deal? He's God. You know, he went through some suffering. He went through some pain. And, and that was rough, you know. But she said, I never really understood what he truly went through growing up. Friends, Jesus wasn't just God in the flesh, though he was. He actually became a human being. He experienced life just like you and I have to experience. He had to learn to talk. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to read all of these things. He had to learn life just like you and I have to. And as he was making his way through his life, as he finally came, he always had a perfect connection with his heavenly father. You know what's strange? You and I, our temptation in life is to, our temptation is the devil says, well, if you do this, I will give you some temporary joy, but it separates you from God. And our temptation is to say, yeah, yeah, I want that temporary joy, and, and I'll, I'll take the separation from God for a time. Jesus, on the other hand, his temptation was to cling to God and just hold on to him so that he wouldn't be lost. I mean, it's kind of an opposite situation. Jesus, in order to be faithful to God, had to be separated from God. He had to experience what we experience. And as he was on the cross, he was suffering. And so when he's crying out and he's saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When he's in the garden and he's saying, Father, please take this cup, the cup of wrath from me. I can't bear it. Father, please, if it is possible, if there's any other way, please do that because I can't bear this. Jesus was not going to the first death. Jesus was suffering the second death. Jesus gave everything for us. If you have your Bibles, look with me in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. I believe we're going to close with these verses. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. We're going to begin, I'll tell you in just a minute, or you might start reading. Jesus went through the judgment for us. What I mean is, He took the the results of the judgment, he took the execution upon himself of the judgment, meaning he received everything that the sinner deserves. So as he's seeing the darkness, he sees no hope of an eternal life. And the amazing thing is Jesus actually decided, you know what? If I won't come up from the tomb, but you can be saved, it's all going to be worth it. Can you imagine? Jesus who had been with... How long had, been, how long had Jesus been with the Father? Micah 5, verse 2, But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee, out of Judah, shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. The, the prophecy said he had been around from everlasting, so he had a perfect communion. Imagine the relationship between the Father and the Son, the communion, the love, the compassion, and as the Father sees him go through all this suffering of 33 years of planet Earth, and Jesus now, for his first time, he doesn't see the bright beams of the Father's love shining upon him as he makes his way to, to Gethsemane. And the darkness begins to shut in. And so Jesus, for the first time, begins to be separated from his Father. But the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 53 that he said, listen, you know, if these people are going to be saved, basically what he simply said is he saw his seed and he rejoiced for them. He rejoiced for us saying, you're going to have eternal life, though in the darkness he couldn't see that he was going to experience eternal life with you. The darkness was so bleak for the Son of God. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he had done nothing 
wrong. But he hung upon that cross. And we see kind of his thought process there in Psalm 22 as we looked at earlier in the meetings. We see his thought process that even though he's in the midst of this darkness, that's how the chapter begins, Psalms 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But even there, he says, you have known me since my mother's womb. You have been with me. And he, he's talking to God and he's having faith in the midst of it even though he sees no light at the end of the tunnel. Jesus can't see through the portals of the tomb. It is as if he will be lost for eternity. But he said, if that's what it takes to win this group of people right here, it will be worth it. Jesus finally hung his head and he gave up his life for us. He gave his life for us. I'm going to read you a poem that was written by John Newton. He was the man, does anybody know what hymn he wrote that we always sing? He, he wrote Amazing Grace. I want you to read this, if you can read this with me. He says, In evil long I took delight, unwaned by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree, an agonies of blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seems to chain, to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I died that thou may live. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue. Such is the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled. That I should such a life destroy, yet live by Him I killed. This man had a conception that it was his, it was my sin that put the Savior to death. That my sin hung him upon that cross and it was love that held him there for he could come down. It was possible for him to come down when they were saying, you know, come down and show yourself the Son of God. He had every bit of power to do that. But it was because he would not come down that you and I can be saved for eternity. Jesus has a love for you and for me that is stronger than death. I want to ask you to bow your heads just now. We have a Savior who went to the cross and the reason He could not go forward with joy, if He would have gone forward with, with rejoicing and with happiness and with smiles, we could have looked and said He must not have gone through the second death for us. It was just another martyr, just another man, a good man and a very good man that died. But we recognize it was much more than that. This was the Son of God who bore the guilt, the sin, the shame, the things that we are terrified that our friends, our families, our spouse would ever find out. 
As Jesus hung upon the cross, He bore those sins. Our public sins, He bore them. Our secret sins that nobody knows about, He bore them on the cross. And as He, as he was there in His shame, the Bible says that He was actually shamed on the cross. He wasn't shamed of us. He was ashamed of the sin that He felt on Himself. And He takes our shame and He gives us peace in response. He gives us joy. He gives us happiness. He gives us the fruit of the Spirit as He sends His Holy Spirit into our lives. He hung upon the cross and He took the, the pain, the sorrow. He took the curses we read about in the Old Testament. He took it all. And maybe there's someone here this evening who says, Jesus... I haven't been putting you first in my life. I recognize that other things have caught my eye and I've run after them. Maybe nobody even knows it, but I recognize right now, Jesus, you have not been the center of my life. You have not been a, my living Savior, Savior, even though you are the living Savior. You haven't been first and foremost in my life. And Jesus, I desperately need you right now. Is there someone who would like to raise their hand and say, Jesus, I want to come back to you right now. You who gave all for me, and I want to return to you just now. Would you raise your hand just now? Father, you see the hands. We have a Savior. And Father, I pray that we would walk after the Savior. I pray that we would not cling to self. That we wouldn't cling to our own dreams, but we would make sure our dreams are aligned with His, your dreams and your plans for us, and we would walk in the footsteps of righteousness. That we would receive Jesus' righteousness. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, he said that he would not have his own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Father, we want to reach out and receive that righteousness. We can't give it to ourselves. We are, our, the Bible tells us, for we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. But Father, we don't have it, but we know that Jesus is. You are the Lord, our righteousness. Thank You that Jesus took that. And we can have boldness in the day of judgment. We can have boldness in the day of judgment. We, we can have no fear if we are walking day by day in the light of Jesus as we're clinging to the Savior, the One who give, gave His life for us. We can give our lives to him, and we can walk forward in the judgment. We can have peace, the Bible says in 1 John. Father, we thank you for giving your son. And as we sing this song together, I pray that it would be more than just an old song we sing. I pray that it would be a song that we live out. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your love and your compassion that you are willing to allow your son to come to this earth, to go through these trials. And thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to go through all of this for us. And I thank you that you did rise up from the tomb and that we can dwell with you for eternity, though you could not see it, that you were still willing to go forward and we praise your holy name. We give our lives to Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.com.
www.ghostbusinessclub.org.